my next guest has sold millions of albums back in the late 80s and early 90s as part of the blues funk rock outfit Spin Doctors. He continues to tour and play both as a solo act as well as with the Spin Doctors. His latest project, Who Shot John, will be familiar to fans who have grown accustomed to his raw and infectious energy. Please welcome to the show singer, songwriter, and an awesome guitar player, Eric Shankman. Hi. <laughs> that was great. Did I get your last name? Yeah, you got it perfect. Did, okay. It's perfect. <laughs> thanks for this. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for inviting me to your home. Yeah, we're at my house. <laughs> yeah, my house, man. You interview me, you can come to my house. There you go. Um, and, and this is not just your house now. This is, as we were talking before, this is... This has been your... Yeah, this was like, actually, this is the house I grew up in. This is like my mom's house. Yeah. And I'm like of the generation where you're taking care of the kids coming up and the mother's old, right? She, my mom has Parkinson's and uh, there's a dementia that goes along with it. And, well, I'm her only child, so I ended up in the middle you're of the You're the Toronto responsible son. Yeah, I'm a good boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's a nice lady. She's a great woman. So wh why wouldn't I? There you go. Yeah. I w that was going to be one of my questions. And might as well start there. Okay. Um, was it your mother that brought you back to Toronto from New York? Yeah, it's actually yeah? for that reason. Okay. So yeah, that's what happened was my mom, um, I was sort of trying, actually I was trying to get settled on the West Coast in the mid-90s. And, uh, and my mom got what was her first sickness which she got better from actually it was a cancer scare but mm. like when that happened i came back here and then it took a while for us to figure it out and by the end of figuring it out um i was pretty much on my way to having a a a, a, a young son oh wow yeah so um it all kind of that happened and, and here, eric jr here i am <laughs> yeah, he's in now he's in college so, awesome yeah is he following dad's footsteps no, Music, he's no? man. He's 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 sm too smart for he's that. <laughs> he's too smart for that. <laughs> what is he up to? What is he doing? He's in engineering. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah he's up at Queens. There you go. Yeah. So he's your retirement package. If things Maybe if things he's, don't work out in the music business, it's possible. We'll see. You know, <laughs> let him be a free wandering spirit. Yeah. How how was how was Toronto back when you were when you were growing up here? You 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 talked earlier about. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, skipping school and heading off to the uh, reference library to listen to records. Yeah, I can say that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get we in Because we were trouble. supposed to meet at the reference library. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the Toronto reference library. That was cool. And when when I was a kid, it was it was new, that mm -hmm. big building there. And uh, we um, I went to Jarvis downtown, and uh, we discovered that all the Charlie Parker records were in the library, like all the, all the dial records anyways. They had this great collection, and um, we'd just skip off school and and go to the library, basically, and, uh, you know, put on the headphones and, you know, listen to music. Was the music always, like, in your f home, in your family, mm -hmm. around yeah. you? You can see there's a whole bunch of records behind you. If you could see right oh now, wow, yeah. yeah, in Radio Land, there's tons of, tons of records, everything. I'm looking at what? The Beatles, Tina Turner. Laura Repo, I got a bit of local, I got a bit of old, I got a bit of That's weird. That's nice. I got it all. That's a nice collection. And your your dad was um, a conductor? No, my grandfather actually was a conductor. Your grandfather was my a conductor? My grandpa was a conductor. He's not really the story. My okay. father was the first cello here in Toronto, um, ah. and that's how come we end up moving here. So okay. I came here in the late 60s as a small boy, and I grew up in the city with the city, really, because wow. that's Toronto kind of grew up 
when I when we moved here, I think the Royal York was the tallest building. Yeah, tallest and, um, building in the British Empire at yeah, one point in time. Yeah, probably right <laughs> in, in the whole universe, maybe even Toronto. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, but uh, then it grew up, and it was really quite excellent actually to grow up here. Um, but I couldn't wait to leave. Wow. You know, I wanted to get out of here. So it's you, ironic to be talking to you. And here. then you're yeah, yeah, back yeah, in tra- yeah. You're back. Yeah. You you, ca- you can't leave it. I what can't. were your what, what sort of music were you into back then? Um, well, like all sorts of stuff really. I've always been really into blues. Um, very early on my my mom was a, she brought me my dad was in the city but my mom brought me up by herself. Okay. And Peter wasn't very responsible towards mm. us for a long time and um, I don't hold it against him. Uh, but my mom sure did. <laughs> 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 so uh, I listened to everything, man. I, we had we always had a border in the house okay. uh, to help pay the rent, yeah. and um, we'd like live on like one floor of like a room and house, and uh, like there was a lot of them. I was saying to you, these all the big Victorian houses. There was a lot more of them back then. So, mm-hmm. you could get, so we lived right on the edge of Rosedale, actually, as it turned out, um, over by Sherburn and, and Bloor, and um, I was into anything that anybody brought home. So my mom, originally, when she broke up with my father, she was like dating that couple of timpanists from the TSO. So they would bring over the all of their like percussion instruments for me to play with. Well, oh, nice. I <laughs> <laughs> don't know if it's X-rated or not, but anyway, so Keep like- Keep yourself busy, young yeah, man. Yeah, so I, you know, that, and my father used to come home, but when, before he left, he'd come back from, like I'm looking at Magical Mystery Tour on, on, on the wall right there, and I remember when my dad brought it home, I think I was four, and uh, so like there was anything that had any kind of orchestral or any kind of hip quotient to it okay. that Peter would bring home on a record. So there was all that, and then there was Matthew, Matthew, no, not Matthew Clark. What was his name? Uh, oh, um, Mike, Mike Sandow. If you're out there, he he was our a boarder that rented a room for my mother in the early 70s and he had a 12 string guitar and he taught me all kinds of cool stuff wow but if you could look right there you can see there's a picture of me with a little guitar like i'm one and a half there see that and i'm playing left-handed it's in the mirror see it's kind of doctored up okay yeah oh yeah i got a pacifier in my mouth yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, and that guitar how big is it's bigger than me right it's bigger than you yeah (laughs) jeez I don't even have to tell you the story. You just look at the picture and tell. Yeah, so that's how long I've been playing. I've so been playing that been, long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get, that, that was your instrument. You weren't like yeah. testing it. My parents were fighting in Boston in some apartment. This is the story. And I walked next door to the folk singer's apartment. And they found me over there like plucking on the guitar. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Did you always know, I guess from that young age, that you just wanted to play music? I don't know really what the answer to that is. I think it's always been a passion for sure, but yeah. not always. Like I, for a long time, people when they ask me how long I've been playing, I usually say I've been trying to quit for many years. So it's kind of like a thing that it's really kind of in me. I think I think I fell in maybe fell in love with the sound of a, st- a string, perhaps. My dad my dad had a wonderful sound. He was a very good cellist. And he had a great tone, mm-hmm. and I do remember the sound in the house because you know that thing sticks into the wood. You put the sound pin in the in the house. Yeah. So you can hear it everywhere, and so I think, yeah, you know, I always had. I, I'm. Let's put it this way. I'm comfortable with my job as <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Like sure. and I didn't care. I, it wouldn't have mattered to me if I made ten dollars a week for the rest of my life, or you know, if I could if I could cut a reasonable living. At it, from when I was like between sixteen and oh about twenty five, you know, when I was playing, it was like more about am I learning something? Does it feel good? Like it wasn't about like um, is this band gonna make it? Which is really kind of ironic because I ended up putting together a band that actually made it. Yeah. 
So go figure. I grew up with like tons of people that wanted to do that. Sure. <laughs> like everybody, right? They want to be yeah. a, especially in Toronto, you want to be a hockey player. Yeah. You know, these days maybe basketball player. Now maybe. But yeah. then, yeah, you want it was always like, or you want to be a rock yeah, star, right? Right, exactly. And then it was, they, well, you know, people probably don't realize the, the days of demo tapes. I oh, mean, like, my goodness. It was like an industry, right? And I was like an opposite of that. Like, I, I didn't want to do demo tapes. I just, I really just wanted to, you know, I, I do be in a rock band, which I deemed would be totally unsuccessful, like really, but it was just the thing I wanted to do. So I tried to split it up and sort of go to school a little bit yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, I, actually, to be honest with you, I, there was like, I think $10,000 available if I went to school. Oh, wow. And so that I, was the bribe from. I, yeah. So at the last minute I finished high school and then I ended up going off to New York for a year. I had enough money to like. And then I got grants after that and did summer jobs and stuff like that. Okay. And that's how I started the Spin Doctors, actually, because I ended up at the Parsons School of Design, New School for Social Research in Lower Manhattan. And, uh, so you did go for school? I did, yeah. Okay. I didn't even bring a guitar. By the end of that year, I ended up in a punk band because uh, Tommy Dog realized that I played the guitar, and he was he was cool. I just like attracted people that needed guitar players, I guess, without even having a guitar. You know, <laughs> it's like the finger comes out. Hey, you. That's a guitar player. <laughs> yes. And you then had the, that look. Yeah, you know. And then the next year, well, the, the the second year I was there, um, a really great jazz saxophonist, uh, Arnie Lawrence, started the New School Jazz and Contemporary Music Program at the new school in the Parsons School of Design and I accidentally met him in an elevator the three days or four days before the school started Yeah, because I was going to register for a photography class and I had a guitar because I was going to Tommy's rehearsal or whatever mm -hmm. and uh, he had a saxophone case and, and all the brochures you know for the school because it's a new school Yeah, and uh, I just looked at, at the the booklet under his arm and there was a list of names and I just sort of casually said to him you know I've got a record by everybody on that list because there are all these jazz musicians on the yeah, list yeah, yeah. and he says what are you doing I said I'm going to register for photography class what are you doing he says I'm starting a jazz school here oh wow so I said uh, you know he says why don't you audition so I had the guitar on so I was like all right so I <laughs> got off at the 12th floor instead of the 10th floor and I played <laughs> uh, like the only two jazz songs I knew, you know, Corcovado by uh, Isjo Beam and uh, probably a blues, but, you know, of some a jazz blues or something. And uh, that was it. I got ex He said, well, we can do something with you. And, of course, if anybody has ever been in a school that just got started, you know that it's not it's not a usual thing. It's like the, somebody has to put the student body together. So this fella yeah. assembled the student body. So oh I wow. was lucky, man. I was, like, in this great – I turned out to be, you know, this sort of slightly older – kid who mm -hmm. Arnie was able to like turn to for like you know kind of common sense and you know I had a little bit more street in me than m a lot of the some of these kids and man the student body was amazing I could go on I'd list a list of names people that are they're all professional now and and really wonderful players I ended up short story long I ended up um, putting the spin doctors together like I think after two years in that school the second year so they're all students that were there? No, okay. no, just Chris. Chris and me and Aaron, the drummer. And then we ended up, um, Mark White is a, a Queens bass player who Aaron was working with in, in a different band, in a funk band. And eventually we, he wanted to pull him in. I, I believe it's always a good idea to let the, if you can, you let your drummer, you know, work with a bass player. Yeah, if they yeah. want to, if they want to come to you, say I like this guy. So sure. Aaron's a terrific drummer, and when he said, "I think I got a guy," after like five bass players, we were like, "Okay, you're the yeah." yeah. <laughs> if you say you got a guy, yeah. and and it, 
you know, as a testament to it all, Mark's personality is like incredibly abrasive and we've still been playing together for 25 years, which is a testament to the fact that like, yeah. when the music is, you know, it's like you get a good dovetailing of like the, you know, convergence of different musicians and it works, you mm -hmm. know, that's something that is valuable that you gotta, you can't just find that every day. For so sure. the Spin Doctors is that. It's okay. just these four guys that fit together in a weird way yeah. and uh, make great music together. You had a different name before, from no. what I read. No, it was always Spin Doctors. Okay. I, but I, it was Chris didn't want to call it Spin Doctors. Okay. And because you know. So where did where did Trucking Company come? Trucking from? Company was, was the band, band before. That, okay, so different band. Yeah, okay. right before there was a band, and that actually okay. So if you want to get into that, that was the year before, Arnie made us basically put ensembles together for our uh, for the first year. Okay. The first exam of at the school was he rented uh, a school bus you know, got a driver in a school bus, a real yellow school bus, drove us up to the Catskills in New York, which is where all the cats used to play in the old, old days. Yeah, yeah. And we got this gig in Liberty, New York, and we went up there, and we played a Friday night. And, uh, you know, the, this sort of, we had these young lions, you know, playing bebop. These guys were really good, and the, the jazz ki kids were, were, they were amazing. And so we went up there, and we had put together, um, like, the funk band. Right. Mm -hmm. Arnie's called us the dummies, basically, because <laughs> we weren't like playing advanced necessarily. <laughs> you were we were, but he was good. But you know, it was like so. Um, <laughs> we had put together this band, uh, the Trucking Company, which was like this uh, John Popper on harmonica, uh, who's uh, later went on to, uh, well, already had uh, the band of Blues Traveler. That's his band. And then we had uh, the drummer is this guy Abe Fogel, who is a terrific R&B drummer for years and years and years. I could. I don't know who he's playing with right now. There was two brothers from New Jersey, and I don't believe they're either still in the business now, but they were both great, bass player and guitar player. And uh, did we have anybody else? We had some horns, too. Yeah. And um, so we wrote a bunch of songs. A couple of them like made it into both of our repertoires, actually. John used to come over to sleep on my floor, and uh, we'd, do, like, we'd write songs together and stuff. And, uh, and Chris knew John from growing up. So uh, John introduced the two of us, and then the next year, mm. the second year I was at school, John decided to it bring Blues Traveler, his band, in from Princeton to work. And uh, he says to me, um, I'm going to bring uh, Blues Traveler into town. We're going to start to work, but I don't want this band to stop. I want this to be my second band. Oh, and wow. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. My, I mean, I come from, like, you know, this family of, like, first cellists and first violinists, so I'm like... I can't be your second fiddle, man. You know, <laughs> I said that. So I, I said, well, that's it. So I, I called Chris. I actually went over to his gig, and I yeah. said, hey, man, <laughs> you and me, you'd be a good front man for this band that I want to put together, you know. So he, he, uh, he agreed, and, uh, and then I, I found Aaron a couple of days later, and uh, I got us a gig, like, right away. Wow. So we had to put the band together for the gig, and 30 years later, you know, lots of ups and downs and this and that's, but... Still playing. It's, yeah, it's the same thing. Where did the name come from? Uh, it came from that election campaign that was happening at the time. I think it was Bush, oh, wow. Bush Spin Senior. Doctors. Yeah, Spin Doctors. It was the first time Spin <laughs> Doctors appeared on the scene. They they were talking about it a lot on the news. Yeah. And they'd be like, he was running this campaign that referred to like a, a thousand points of light. I think it was the, the older Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, my grandma was like a ABC News watching old lady. She'd sit up there and watch the news and then. Uh, 
Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, right? And she'd comment on all of it. And uh, I, one day she says to me, come in here, you know, because I'd go visit her. She lived in New York in the village. Mm-hmm. I'd go visit her from school, this little apartment that my mother grew up in. And uh, and uh, she says, come in here. You got to see this. It's crazy. The, the man can't even speak for himself. He's got these people, <laughs> spin doctors. And uh, I was in a conversation the next day with some friends uh, in a class, and uh, it came up. I said the name. I said, you know, we were talking. My grandma was talking to a spin doctor. Somebody said that'd be a great name for a band. And I was like, and the light bulb just went off. So I brought it to Chris, who of course hated it. But what was what was his choice? Do you remember? He didn't have one. <laughs> he didn't have one. He had sure, a, he what, but he's a lyricist. So what's he gonna say? You know? And he's like, <laughs> he's like, so he goes. I said, well, you know, you, you, I'll tell you what, buddy. You, you got a couple. You got two weeks. <laughs> you want to? You beat it, no problem. You know, I've been putting bands together for a long time. My life. This is one one of the things I have to, I like to do. So I've been yeah. putting bands together since the fifth grade, really. And uh, I and I've named a lot of them. And I I do have confidence in the in my naming abilities. I mm-hmm. knew I knew, man. I was like, he ain't gonna be. That. <laughs> and that's where it came from. How do you guys? How would you guys work together? He he would come up with the lyrics, and you'd come up with the music, Mm-mm. or you just no, start it's much jamming. More, or? Yeah, it's way more. Um, yeah. Some some songs, <clears throat> Chris had some songs. I had some songs. Aaron had some songs. We um, the three of us, right? And um, we would um, finish each finish each other's ideas. Typically, okay, you know. So somebody would have a nucleus, and then somebody would finish it. Some things are collaborative, like straight from the beginning. Yeah. But mostly, you know, it's uh, some things are three way, some things are two way. I think I put a lot of like guitar riff and chord progression stuff under Chris's like originally like two princes and uh, little miss and stuff that are our hits um, most of our hits are like roughly to derive from Chris's lyric melody my riff chord yeah. progression sort of thing so that would probably be our most successful that that's our successful yeah. writing combination how did so how do you, how do you go from you're in school second year hey. Uh, you said, "Hey, let's play," because uh, you know this guy's he's gone. He's he's yeah. setting up a blues travel. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you get from there to somebody hearing you and going, "I I think there's a hit somewhere in here." Uh, you know, that's what I was saying originally about demo tapes. Is like when I was growing up, everybody seemed to want to have a demo tape and try to get noticed by a record company because that was the structure, right? And then sure, and then you know maybe somebody would hear a hit. And it's a funny time too because you're coming out of an era, the record company era, where um, you know we, they, the A and R guys were actually so a thing, artist and repertoire. So they yeah. the concept of the old record industry was they'd get a band and then they'd like um, you know develop catalog. That was actually a thing. They'd be like five records in. Don't worry about the second record, boys. You know, yeah. it's all about catalog. You know, you just keep going. Just right? keep putting together. But a bunch in around of stuff. the mid the early '90s, that stopped. And when we originally signed a record contract, it was with CBS Records, right? Oh, wow. And Sony bought CBS the next year. Yeah. And really, the record industry changed right then. Because what happened was you had Sony bought CBS, and it's a very simple analogy. It's like Sony didn't just have, it wasn't just entertainment. They were making TVs. They were making this. They were making that. That's right. So now all of a sudden, the music is a widget, too. Mm. So now they're saying to you, well... You sold this many last year. You better do the same thing this year. It became more like that. Less about catalog, more about instant expectation. Yeah. So now, of course, they're like going to like, well, you know, can you sound more like this or can you sound more like that or can you make your first record again? There was a more 
you know, there wasn't so much this idea there could be a little bit more time. So that the pressure was pretty cooking. There, wow. you know. I think it changed like right then. That, that was kind of the, the quick death of the spin doctors. If there was a pop death of the spin doctors in terms of right then, the record company called for our, our second record too fast. Okay. And they could have, we could have stuck with Pocket Full of Crypto for another year. Wow. People were already sick of the one song. It was a very successful record. Mm -hmm. And what they did to us by <coughs> calling for the second record real quick was they made us jump it too fast. And so we were, t we got too self, I think we were a bit too self-conscious about it. And as a result, you know, we probably would have made a better second record it, it had that not happened. And given the fact that the industry changed right there, yeah, right, the second record was actually really important. <laughs> so it had to be, right? right. Yeah. So Pressure's then, on. then there was like, it's funny the way it worked with my band, though, because it's like then after that, like we had a seven year kind of split because I couldn't take that. That was too much for me. I don't know. I don't want to get into the psychology of it, but something about not working it the way that my gut felt like it should be worked went against my grain. And mm. it, I'm, I'm, I, st I started telling you because you a asked me what music I was into as a yeah. kid. The other part of besides what my dad brought home was this was like kind of a punk town in the in the mid seventies, right? Like Toronto's a punk town. You huh? know, it's like rock and roll. Yeah. You know, it's like the vile tones, screaming, stamming the problems, and the raving mojos. This, this is the music that I grew up on. It was like local music, your teenage head, these sorts of things. You know, wow. Ramones. I mean, you know, deriv derived this, and and there was a lot of that. Even though I had blues from before, there was this huge period of new wave and punk where nobody wanted to. None of us were in a blues. It was like, yeah, you know, it's like the anti next hot thing. Yeah, it's freaking anti-blues, anti-establishment, right? Or anti establishment yeah. that's right. So, so for me, it's funny because it's uh, ironically too the, the the Spin Doctors were actually a very underground grassroots band for the entire time that we played clubs in New York, which was, uh, I guess, about three years straight. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, but the one hit, if you know the band from after 1994, it's like a pop band that had like a couple of hits, right? Yeah. But if you if you were into the band before that, we were actually, we had tons of street cred, like for the first three years. Right? Sure. And we'd have like a lineup around the block, you know, all that stuff. We, if you opened the Village Voice in 1991, you would see like, all you would see, would be, oh, they're here, yeah. oh, they're here, or they're there, they're there, you know. So it's sort of a funny thing. But so anyways, getting back to the, the thing, it's like the <clears throat> when that happened with, with the business, you know, my, my, uh, my rock and roll rebel, like, bone just, like, stood straight yeah, up. Yeah, I can I imagine like, that. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck this. Well, listen, you know? yeah. the, the, the change in music was, like, when did, did, it was almost MTV around the same time? Yeah, yeah, it was. Right, so the importance of yeah. video and yeah. that sort of thing. So how did, how did that impact um, how you guys approached music? Well, it, it was like a really, really dramatic uh, uh, effect of, on us, um, MTV, because we were kind of dead in the water. Like, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd spent all our tour support money that the record company could give us on mm. a silly tour that they recommended, which didn't really do much, much for us. We didn't care. We, as far as we were concerned, we were in a bus, not a van anymore, and we were you're successful in your mind. Sure. But really, from the point of view of record company, like, we were pretty much dead. And then uh, a couple of radio stations started playing Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, and it started doing really incredible things. It was, it, the, the, that record at that time was had incredible pop appeal, and people just heard that song. Yeah. And they want to hear it again. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't even our, like, best song on the record, so it was kind of like... So that was your first. That was the first single was Little Miss Camp. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think it went to like seventeen, yeah. something like that. And then we so we did a video for it, um, and uh, it's funny because just last week, 
the spin doctors played in Connecticut, and we played right next to the town, New Britain, Connecticut, where it was the first place that we saw that video in a club. It was a funny little club. We were playing this rock club, and right next door was a was a like a strip bar, and there was like <laughs> doors connecting the two, and they had videos in this in the strip bar. And somebody yeah. came, the sound man came running in. He was next door. They're playing your video. Like, you guys got to come next door. <laughs> it's the first time I ever saw the video. And then when we were coming back from that same. Uh, to, uh, that same gig. No, maybe it wasn't the same gig. It might have been a slightly earlier, but I also remember hearing the song the first time in the van, too. That record sounds great on the radio. It's something about the way that it was made, the compression. When it gets on the radio, it pops. Mm. And then, so Little Miss was the first single. And that video, we made it real quick after the, you know, the radio started responding to the single. Uh, our management was hip enough to, to sort of you know, n nudge the record company and say, hey, and that's what management's supposed to do when something mm -hmm. good happens. I learned that's a lesson I learned. You know, something if anything happens, you nudge somebody nudge and be like, "Hey, <laughs> what does that mean?" <laughs> you, know, you know, it's a good technique. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so uh, so. Anyways, short story long, we made that video for Little Miss Campy Wrong very soon after that, and um, and that was the beginning of our video career, I guess you yeah. call it. We, we, we had a few hits off that record. The record was very successful that year. It stayed in the, the record chart like almost the whole year, and we had a string of top 40 songs, top 100 songs, uh, actually, um, through it. And, um, and what was really interesting was, like I told you, we were like a club band for that period of time, so we were really well acquainted with sort of grassroots, like, you know, hardcore fans, like, sure. that would follow us around and all this. And then all of a sudden, the video culture started happening. So our the video started getting played, like, in a mass way yeah. on MTV. And then you're doing, like, MTV this and MTV that. And there's interviews and this and that. And, you know, ascending the, the thing. But what happened also was the crowds got a lot bigger. And there was, like, this, we, I think we used to call it, like, the MTV effect, man. Like, you'd look out, and instead of having, like, a club full of, like, nuts people yeah. that were ready to rock, there was all these kids that looked like they were watching TV. Right, and it was like and you're just watching. They're not it, like there was a, it was a, there was mm. a, it was different. They were totally into it, but it was a different. There was a different vibe. Like you could see what you know. You'd be like, oh, they were watching MTV. You could <laughs> tell, right? Those are the MTV it's, kids. It's very. They interesting. had collars on their shirts, like I'm wearing today. You know, it's just a look, man. It's a sort of a. You know, it's very interesting. Anyways, that didn't. You know, it didn't last that. I'm sure it didn't last that long. The MTV was sort of a bubble, anyways. But it was very good for us, and that's sort of like how we 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 popped the main, mainstream. Was, yeah. Was, was like that and then we had a really good run then two princes sort of followed a couple of songs um and it ran all the way up to it was in the top three i think and it was the most popular song in co in the college radio that year as well wow um, and we did all sorts of stuff associated with having that kind of a you thing. you played uh, so i want to you talked about you know size and, and the types of people that would come out in groups um so going from the club scene and then you're doing slightly bigger concerts, mm -hmm. and you see, oh, these are the MTV kids. Yep. And then you get invited to Woodstock. Yeah. Was it 94? 94, Woodstock yeah. 94? Yeah, it was um, How was that? It was great. It was really muddy, actually. Um, you know, Woodstock was great. There was a few, like, I, you know, I can sort of capsulize it. There's, like, a, there's, there's a few, like, really big things that we did, like, right around 94 that were sort of, like, you know, as a result mm -hmm. of there was like we got to play the Woodstock 25, which was great, and we were we had a great slot. And we were like right between the Chili Peppers and Stevie Winwood, I think. So it was like you know it was major, and the, the audience was huge, and it was really super terrific. And even better actually was 
uh, earlier in the summer, we had played second last at Glastonbury in England. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was second amazing. Second last. Yeah, yeah, we were real big in England that year. Wow. And probably bigger, actually, in England, you know. Hmm. People used to think we were English, two princes. Because you're singing about, singing about royalty. You know, oh, I thought you guys were English. <laughs> was the two princes, you know. <laughs> And, and so yeah, so um, but Glastonbury was huge, and we did we did Letterman a bunch of times, and we did um, Saturday Night Live. How was well. how was uh, so I'm a huge Letterman fan. Me too. Um, how was Love Dave. how was playing there? Cold. He cold. Always, he always kept the room very cold. That's ah, the first thing that comes to you mind. Notice that it's freezing in there. <laughs> it's a great gig, man. The first time we played Letterman, well, uh, the first couple of times I think was at Thirty Rock. Actually, I think the first time we did with uh, ah. we played Little Miss up in the Thirty Rock building with uh, uh, oh, um, um, Mariel Hemingway and uh, Christopher Walken were the guests. Oh, and it wow. was like it was a big deal because we hadn't we hadn't done um, I don't think any TV at that point, and so I just. I remember being in the, there wasn't really a green room, there was just kind of the hallway outside and it was like uh, the band and the two of the guests, the, both those guests. Just hanging out in the hallway. And, <laughs> and Christopher Walken is kind of a scary guy anyways. Yeah. And Marilyn Hemingway is big. She's like tall. Oh wow. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it's a bit intimidating man. But we did it anyways, it was good, you know. People said, you look like you're having fun on that show. And I was actually, I squint when I'm nervous. So I was like, you know, I was definitely nervous, man. It was great though, and Dave was really, really nice to us. Chris is very good with the camera. He was really good back then, especially with the camera. Yeah. And um, it's just very relaxed. And the, the trio's terrific. I mean, we're all, we, we lock really well and we're, we don't use really effects of any kind. It's just mm -hmm. guitar, bass, and drums. And we groove, man, so it's like, um, Did Paul Schaefer's band sort of? We were we were the in? first group yeah. that they let play without without uh, the band. Yeah, yeah. They I think Anton didn't play. Aaron played alone, and we were I think we were the very first group that did it because Anton liked Aaron's drumming. That's what happened. And ah. Yeah. So he was like, oh, you guys can. So we played that, and then we played a series of Letterman's after that, um, uh, just with various pieces of the band. I think uh, I was oh, just wow. watching one the other day. We did one with Roger Daltrey. I saw that video. Yeah, that's a good one. That's substitute. We did that. We did. Roger's 50th birthday at Carnegie Hall with him and then he asked us to do uh, Letterman with him and we did substitute oh wow yeah and so that was I think it's probably like Will Lee singing backup and Schaefer doing some keyboards but it was just the band and Roger and us other than that and then different versions you know of like some of them do you know why Letterman liked you guys so much you know, I'm not really sure, but he was really super nice to us the first time we were on there. He said something like, these guys have sold a billion records or something. It was just a really, really great thing to have happen. And uh, and we got a huge bump out of that show. And then, you know, I'm really not sure what it was, but like they were just fond of us for the first couple of years there. We did a bunch of Letterman. And then when they moved to um, uh, Ed Sullivan Theater, we yeah. were like the third show I think we got to play on. And, That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was really great. And uh, and I actually did Letterman even I, I, like without the band. I did it with uh, Carly Simon one time, just Carly and me and the band. And uh, and so and then we did the Daltrey thing too. So yeah, Letterman was really, really kind of nice to us. What do you think about what he's doing now? Have you seen any of his? Uh, I saw the though? I saw his uh, uh, the first couple. I saw the Obama one. Yeah, I, I love Dave. I like. I, <laughs> you know, I have no problem with Dave. Yeah, yeah. he's know. good. He's good. I, I've I've seen clips where a band will come on and when the band's done. Um, he's always asking about the drums. Right. So uh, he likes drums, maybe. Yeah. Well, I was, that I'm, could I'm, be it, too, right? I'm wondering whether yeah. or not you, you sort of noticed that. Oh, you, mm -mm. Okay. Mm -mm. I didn't, but I do know 
that Anton liked us. Anton's a terrific drummer, and it wouldn't surprise me for a minute if yeah. Dave was into drums because his band always had a great drummer. For sure. You guys also played Saturday Night Live. Yeah, we did. Yeah, mm, yeah. It was Joe Pesci. That was Joe really, Pesci was the. It uh, was extremely great. Yeah, it was just so exciting. That was a, one of the best times. Now I know Joe Pesci would have been there for like a week, sort of prepping and everything. Is it the same with you guys? It's the same setup for everybody. They probably still do it the same way. They do uh, Thursday dress. Okay. Full dress rehearsal, uh, and then they do Saturday. They run the show once and make the final cuts, and then they run it. Then they have the audience come in right away after, and then they tape. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's like you do. It's really the third time through. Yeah. But they they cut all the way. I remember there were some there were ske uh, sketches that like I really thought were so funny that I that 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 actually got cut. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, this isn't. It was incredible watching. You know, the momentum is amazing because they're just rolling up to the show, and yeah. it was really live. Like it was, I think there was like a five-second delay. Oh wow! So when the red light goes on, it's like You're on. I didn't even sleep the night before. I was like, what if I break a string? I play a Stratocaster. Anybody that plays a Stratocaster, if you break a string, the bridge goes off center, so all the strings go out of tune, right? Oh, lovely! So I was just like, there's something about that live TV, NBC. <laughs> Plus the fact that that room that they they tape in is the it's the NBC orchestra room. It was the room that like Toscanini conducted the NBC orchestra in. and mm. if you come I come from a classical family so yeah. as soon as I told my old man oh, we're doing uh, SNL he was like oh that's the Toscanini room it was worse you know I was like oh no <laughs> everybody's go. gonna be watching and we're playing the Toscanini room <laughs> shit but it was really super exciting it was it was great I mean that night was amazing we we you know we we had a great time and who was who was who was part of the cast back then? Do you remember? Yeah, sure, man. I was in the makeup room talking to uh, Chris Farley. was right next to me getting made up at one wow. point. So I was like, you know, just give, doing a little back and forth with him. It was like, um, the uh, uh, who else was in it? Well, David Spade and that, that, that crew, the Chris Farley era. It, mm -hmm. was, it was all those guys. The Chris, Chris Farley was the only guy that I really talked to in the, in the cast, I think, yeah. that I remember because he was just sitting right next to me in the chair, you know. And then there's an intercom going in the back, and there's this voice talking about, you know, bring this prop, bring that prop. Are you ready for this sketch? It's really quite an amazing wow. like, flow going on back Big there. Big production. Yeah, it was cool. G. E. Smith was it was the G. E. Smith band at the time, and that very that same night, man. Of course, um, you know, if, well, Joe Pesci was the host, so De Niro came, and so did Martin Scorsese. So I got to meet all those three guys. Wow. In the same night, you know. And then Aykroyd was at the party afterwards. So And he brought the Bluesmobile. So okay. Yeah, it was just like a crazy cool, you know, night. Of, of at, at any point throughout this journey, are you at ever pinching yourself, saying, how the heck did I come from Toronto, and going to school in New York, and all of a sudden I'm... Yeah, yeah. At Saturday Night Live moments. after, after yeah. a party. Yeah, that was that was that was definitely a definite pinch me moment for sure. I yeah. had a bunch of those. It was, but um, I, I yeah yeah definitely the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. That must be wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were also on the cover of the Rolling Stones. Yeah, that must have been a big. That, that was pretty big. That was a big, big, big yeah, deal. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. You 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 played with Roger Daltrey and and Carly Simon. You mentioned as well. Um, you know, outside of playing with your own band, was, was there a, a musician or a performer that um, you said, this is awesome, I can't believe I'm playing with this person? Yeah, there's been a bunch of people like that. Yeah. Um, I think for me, probably uh, it would be, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of a jazz musician in my heart. And sure. so um, I played in two groups in New York that were like wide 
sort of free jazz. One was, and the other one was kind of an Afro-Cuban jazz band mm -hmm. um, with free elements. A guy named Kip Hanrahan's band, and uh, in that group, um, I played with. Um, see who was in the band? Charles Neville, who was a personal favorite of mine. Um, of the Neville brothers. Yeah, Jack mm -hmm. Bruce from Cream, uh, Fernando Saunders, wow. who is like the bass player from, you know, Lou Reed and uh, Jeff Beck, uh, and. Uh, the drummers were Robbie Amin and J.T. Lewis, two of my favorite drummers. So, like, um, little Jimmy Scott played with us, a, an old jazz singer who's just, like, legendary. And there was, like, a bunch of um, the, the Cuban guys that um, uh, um, um, Arturo and uh, El Negro and these guys that uh, played in the um, hand drums and the violinist, um, I don't remember his name, Alfredo Triff, I think. Mm -hmm. So it was like I was playing with these guys who, I, in my mind, were just you know, the heaviest cats. Wow. Yeah. So to me, you know, you could say like, I mean, the Carnegie Hall thing, that was cool. Yeah. You know, I was standing next to Alice Cooper. I was on a mic with, you know, <laughs> Sinead, Sinead O'Connor and David yeah. Sanborn and me were sharing a mic, singing, joined together with the band, uh, hanging out backstage with the guy from the Chieftains and this and that. And that's all great. But playing with these, you know, cats. Yeah. That, that was, and oh, Jesus, Don Pullen, who... It's so great that most people probably never even heard of him. He was a fantastic jazz pianist, and he was in the band. So it was like uh, it was a real like you know um, you know like um, m uh, mesh of of like some of the greats, yeah, yeah. And and Kip as a band leader was putting it all together. We had three bass players. Andy Gonzalez was the third bass player. Andy Gonzalez was Jocko's favorite bass player. So it was like, yeah, that was a big, that, that, that's my, my big pinch me band. Nice. Yeah. Is there anyone that you haven't played with that you'd love to play with? All sorts of people. Yeah? Yeah. There's so many musicians out there. Uh, right? every, everybody, <laughs> anybody that can play, I want to play. <laughs> you just want to yeah. play. Yeah. Um, so, I, so 1994, you're, so this is what I read. You walk, there was a concert happening and you just walked off stage. Yeah. Is that literally what happened? Uh, well, no. I was more better about it than that. I, okay. I, uh, I had a, the gig was done. The gig, yeah. It was, something happened in the gig that uh -oh. like totally pissed me off. I can't even really remember what it was. Chris did some dumbass thing. And uh, he'd been doing a lot of dumbass things because, uh, you know, he was just so into himself at the end of that year. Uh, for lack of a better expression. So he had done something, and uh, the, the gig was over, and it was the Greek Theater in San Francisco, I believe. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I actually quit the band um, right then and there. <laughs> I was like... Gigs over, I'm out of here, Chris. I think it was something like, fuck you, I quit. Like, that's kind of me. That's your band, though. Yeah, yeah, so it was a big deal. But it actually held, I'm stubborn, and uh, I didn't speak to those guys for seven years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and they went through a bunch of different people. So we had done all our, our big records were all, they didn't do anything, you know, that I would really deem to be anything extra special or nothing more than we did. Certainly didn't improve on the band any, mm -hmm. um, you know. And uh, thank God for Aaron Comas, our drummer, who stayed with the project the entire time. I, I, I regularly salute that man. Yeah. Because he kept the, it, the band, I, in 19, in 2001, the Wetlands um, Club was our probably our number two place that we used to play in New York, and they closed, so they did a, a uh, um, celebration. Sure. And they, they put the band back together. Oh, they, wow. They called 
management. They were like, can you get, he was like, they were like, I'll do it if he'll, do, we'll do it if he'll do it. I was like, well, I'll do it if they'll do it. And we basically just met in a room and played together for about an hour after not talking for seven years. We didn't even rehearse, man. It was just like, then we did the gig and it was killer. And uh, then the trade centers fell down three days later. Oh shit. Yeah, and that was like 15 blocks to the south. I lived even closer to them than that. Wow. So um, we've been together again ever since, which is funny because it's 20 years. So actually we were together for seven years, we split up for seven years, and we've been together for 20 years since those seven years. Since those seven years. So how do you, like, so seven years, like, you don't talk to them, there's nah, no... Stubborn, can I say motherfucker? Because yeah, I'm yeah. a stubborn motherfucker. It's not the CBC. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am a stubborn Jeez. motherfucker. Yeah, it's an, So I was just like, I was... And they must have been stubborn too, right? They didn't, oh, totally, or did they reach yeah. out? They were like, screw you, man. Who needs you? Screw yeah. you. We'll do whatever we want. We're like sitting on top of the world. I was like... And I, I you know, it, it was dumb by anybody's standards. My dad, like, I think he yelled at me. No, he, you know, but I, I, I did the right thing, man. It, what we, I, the band wasn't doing right by what I, what my vision was. It was like we were kind of sort of pandering out and like so I, I viewed it as kind of selling out. And then if we were going to listen to Chris, who was kind of just lofty on in, into his land at that time, I can't blame him for it. It's hard to be in the center. Yeah. Um. You know, but it was, you know, it, it just didn't feel right. And I still stand behind. I, I remember years later, actually, he threw his arm around my shoulder on on. 8th Avenue one day about, I want to say, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And he was like, you know what, man? You were right back then. And I was just like, what? <laughs> but the point is, really, yeah. is like stuff happens that, that, that like this all the time to mm, any sure. kind of high-pressure situation. And I count us as lucky, really. Um, we lost some of our touring juice. Um, we maybe would have had a – we maybe would be more successful right now. But what we got – as a result of being apart and then getting the four of us back together is a very, very strong bond between the four of us mm -hmm. and a really, really clear identity uh, on what and who we are. And since then, the group is like, I, we play better today than we've ever played together. Wow. And we enjoy playing together. Yeah. And we, we challenge each other. Uh, we're like a, a four dysfunctional brothers. And so it really got us... And we've never we've never deviated ever since, right? So it's a funny sort of a thing. Like you know, somebody could have died. Sure. Uh, all sorts of things that happens in a lot of bands. Someone could have just left the somebody business. Somebody could have left the That's business. It. A lot of things could have happened. Yeah. And we could have stayed together, become like you know seven times as successful and like twenty five times as fucked up, um, mm. right? So this is like our lot, and. Uh, you know, I challenge anybody, man. I all the time people come up to me after a spin doctor show and they're like, "Man, I didn't know you guys were that good." Like, and, <laughs> I, and I'm 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 like not the first person to toot my own horn, but the, yeah. the combination, the combo is you've been with guys that long, been through shit like that. Yeah, you know, it ain't no gimme in sure. the words of Michael Carvin. <laughs> uh, so what, what do you do in those? I'm guessing this is where your solo career yeah comes into play. Yeah, yeah. So my solo career is a function of the fact that Chris needed to make some solo records. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah. You know, and that's what happens. Sure. He had some problems with his voice before I was even back. Then he had some more problems like that. Yeah, I read somewhere like yeah. someone said that you might not even be able to speak to him or. Yeah, he. What he's, happened there? Do well, you know? he's had like two uh, palsy incidents. With, oh wow. Yeah, with that are unrelated. Sure, that, sure. That, that uh, fucked his voice up, and um, so we had to take some time off for that. He had a diaphragm oper operation recently. He had a, a nerve problem. 
and uh, but he's fine and he's actually singing better than ever mm. uh, but when he started making this one solo record and then had this vocal problem and Aaron made a solo record and I, I was just thinking well I'm not gonna I'm gonna wait and you know I, I think maybe what happens is the person that I, this is just it's kind of a funny theory but the person that puts the band together mm -hmm. is the last person to want to make a solo record mm. like you know I was like come on let's make another record yeah I was like hey, let's make another record I'm waiting around and eventually I, I started you know I was like well okay if we're gonna do this I, it was like sort of like the new direction of the group it's like okay you know what we're adults now everybody do their own thing and it all feeds back into the bigger footprint and we will like we will you know streamline our thing at the same time so I buy it now I think yeah. it's, it's totally reasonable and so that's where my solo project came from and that's why I play in Toronto regularly every Wednesday and I sing every Wednesday and I so work. you're still doing that yeah yeah baby I do it every work on my repertoire work on my show and then when the guy that I normally do this the the, uh, the, the Wednesdays with Leo Valvasorius uh, works with uh, Sue Foley is her bass player when he's out of town I do my show there I practice that so and then I take that on the road my show so um, yeah so it all sort of feeds into end so beginning of this year my record who shot John came out originally yeah. I was just gonna put it out myself and I ended up putting it out on Viztone Records which is uh, actually Bob Margolin's label and he was Muddy Waters guitar player for many many years oh wow yeah he's a terrific terrific artist and uh, so you know those guys like the record so I ended up putting it out on their label and, um, and by virtue of that it came out in January so I had a 19 a 2019 release and I've just been go I've been like really learning about the new business all year you know I it guess is a new have, music you business, have to have a horse in the in you know, fish in the pond to, I guess you know to understand you know yeah. what they're doing in there so I've been sort of pushing this project around you know making art with it making other art making a lot of video a lot of content that I'm now mm -hmm. pushing out like now yeah and uh, starting to do a little bit more touring in December with it as well so yeah it's it sort of and um, as I said before it sort of spins back into the spin doctor content as well um, you know it's it's comfortable in there it can jump back and forth so I'm are, the are the sounds still because I, I i read somewhere that there's a new spin doctors album coming out yeah we'll be doing something in, new this year in yeah, 2020 yeah in 2020 yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah are the sounds very similar or do you or is there a well my stuff is the most similar i think okay actually to the spin doctors okay because the band my concept of a trio is the same mm. right so right what a band is, is yeah, yeah my like tip, my my group, the bass. I think the biggest difference is the bass presence is more blues based and less funk based. Okay. So that's pretty much the difference there. And uh, but great drummers, just I can't. After Aaron spoiled me, man, I can't work with <laughs> anybody that's not a great drummer anymore. So I, I have Van Romaine and Cody Dickinson are the two drummers, and they're both terrific on the record. And just real quick, in a nutshell, yeah. the record was fun to make. I did it like it came out of that sense of okay i'm gonna i got some songs that need to be recorded i'm gonna record them the way i want to mm. and uh i ended up just going to visit my two favorite drummers and oh, wow. cut guitar vocals drums and then brought that stuff back to uh, ontario and uh, my production partner the great sean kellerman actually i pitch sean is a terrific canadian blues musician that doesn't get enough due people know who he is in France though and um, and so he and I basically you know uh, added bass he ended up playing bass on the record um, and uh, put you know some guitar overdubs and you know I sang 
maybe two thirds of the songs over again as you usually do. Yeah. But m all of the drums and all of the guitar that I tracked or originally is all front and center. It's and all so on it there. sounds very live actually. And that's very much what a Spin Doctors record would be. Yeah. In, in terms of how we do it. So there is similarity in terms of the power of the sound and this sort of thing. Aaron's music's more jazz, jazzy. Chris's stuff is more acoustic-y, more like, uh, so yeah, my stuff runs up the middle, kind of like the band, really. Nice. Yeah. Who shot John? What's the meaning behind that? Uh, cut the bullshit is what it means. It's a, All it's, right. It's an expression. <laughs> it's a colloquialism. Okay. It just means like, instead of saying, don't give me that bullshit, you'd, yeah. just, you'd say, don't give me that. Who shot John? I don't want to hear it. Ah. You know, like, I don't want to hear the conjecture about the stupid argument about the thing we're talking about because we both know what actually happened there. And, and what's, what's this? Okay, so this is a commentary on... It's a commentary on life. It's like, it's just a commentary. It's funny. It's been going around my head for 30 years, that, that phrase. And it turned into this Zydeco song. Um, and, and loosely put, it's just really a mantra about really not wanting to live under the bullshit like wherever possible hmm. like i want to have a pretty clean life in terms of the bullshit yeah we all do we all make mistakes we all we're all human we all do what sure. we do but i mean essentially we're trying to follow your heart and try to be you know close close to the bone and and like you know like try to get some real stuff feel for some real stuff before you die and that's yeah. basically what the song that's what the record is about right. and that's what that song is but it's it's a it's a really good natured it takes tongue in cheek sure the subject enough of the bullshit let's let's, yeah. let's just yeah. get let's on with the show this is groove dance yeah. party have a good time oh nice <laughs> that's it how is it how does it feel to to sort of be the lead you I know love it. guitar and singing i love it man yeah yeah i do i'm not as i'm not as good with a crowd as chris but <laughs> but i'm learning yeah and uh yeah yeah and i love learning it's something that i like to do and i've been like i love singing and i've been i sing a lot and uh, it gives me an opportunity to expand my repertoire like i said and then i back my shit up with like a lot of old blues and rock blues and soul songs and whatnot so you know um it's coming from there so like a kind of like my show is sort of like a review. I try to make it like a review like that ah. too. I sort of try to deal with the room in that in that context. So Interesting. Yeah, it's cool. So one of the things that has changed, like just this just popped into my head, is everyone's got a phone on them. <laughs> so when you first start with a spin doctor, like no one's got a phone. No, everyone's yeah. into it. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it is now. Like at your shows, are there like people there literally? Yeah. All you see are phones. Well, you don't all you see are phones. Sure, sure. We have an older, maybe an older crowd or whatever, but, yeah. you know, yeah, you see enough phones. But I remember not seeing any phones, if that's where you're getting. Yeah, at. Yeah. yeah. Does that change how you no. perform or interact with yes. the crowd? Yeah? <laughs> T tell me. <laughs> well, everything's being recorded. <laughs> that's why. You got to watch what you see, watch what you do. <laughs> yeah, you're more conscious of, like, uh, you're more, I'm more conscious of, of um you know everything physically, how how you stand, what you're doing, because you're seeing it back all the time, right? So I guess in a way it's much better. You know. Does it freak you out? No, not really. Does it does it hold you back? Like shit. No, I, it I, makes me grow. It makes it just yeah? challenges me to try right. to like stand up straighter and try to like <laughs> deal with this shit. Um. So you, things are fun again. Yeah. Yeah. Really fun. That's nice. Yeah. Um. I listened to Salvation. Uh huh. Um. And there's a. There's a line in there, heroes ain't around. Your heroes ain't around. Yeah. Your friends can't be found and your heroes ain't around. Yeah. 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 Tell me about that. Like, hero, like well, who are some of your heroes that... that My heroes? 
Oh, uh, let's are see. Are they behind me right there with the There's, records? I, I looked, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, my heroes are far and wide, actually. Uh, let's see. My, you know, really, from musicians, there I, I have obvious musician heroes, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'll just give you a few. I sure. don't know. Jimi Hendrix, Duke Ellington. Of course, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'll look it over here now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some... Uh, uh, I don't Billy Strayhorn. I could just go on and on. But I think heroes more to poets, maybe. Mm. I don't know. Sure. I like, I like Harlem in the 20s, 30s, like when, when life was hard for people. Mm -hmm. And they were like eking out, like when Ellington was writing all that great stuff, you know. Yeah. Poets like, I don't know, Langston Hughes, people like that. People that really had something to deal with. Other, other, other people. I'm a big fan of people that have a hard struggle, you know. When sure. Ex talk about that. like So I like... I like really great photographers too. I like art that makes me think. I always liked Salvador Dali. My hero. He's got some weird yeah. shit. Make an order out of chaos. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. I don't know. Um, teachers of mine are probably the highest on my list. Okay. I see my biggest heroes are probably like uh, Chico Hamilton, who is my, one of my best teachers. And uh, the what, guy what did uh, Chico teach you? Chico was a drummer, but. Uh, he taught me everything about like you know stuff about being a band leader, how to show up for the gig on time, not necessarily the interview, <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know dress dress for the show, for the you show. know yeah stuff like this you know just like inside things man about how to you know how to be classy when you need to be and how to be firm when you need to be how to get paid yeah how not to you know. People think that everything's going great for you when they look at you and you're on a stage and they don't have any clue really what's happening like behind the scenes. Is but Chico still around? Nah, he died. Uh -huh. he, he died at 95 about, I think about eight years ago. Yeah. He was terrific, just for background. Played with, grew up with Charlie Mingus in Watts, LA and ended up playing with Billie Holiday. Uh, was a longtime drummer of, uh, of um, uh, Lena Horne. Many, many mm. years he played, he played with Lena Horne, and he had his own band for many years and was famous for bringing people like Eric Dolphy, Larry Carlton. Uh, who am I thinking of? There's another great saxophonist that came up. Many great New York jazz musicians came up through Chico's band as well, which was a thing and is a thing you yeah. know, in terms of like you go study with some old guy and learn how to, how to do it. And they, you know, I think it's a little harder now to do that. These kids are more delicate. Yeah. They're delicate, man. You can't yell at a kid now. You could yell at a kid back there. Come on, man. She could never yell at me. But I mean, you know, sure, sure. You know, it'd be like there there's a, a bit of hard knocks to it, you know. I yeah. didn't mind back then, you know, sitting around and waiting. Things have changed. Things have changed. Not just in music, but all over the place. All eh? over the place. That's right. Yeah. So my heroes, my biggest heroes are my teachers, I think, probably. That's awesome. Know. And my mom, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Has has this whole advent of music online and streaming does that impact I've, I've heard people talk about making music for spotify right right that's like, a thing yeah does that do you care about that shit or or, or, or is it you know what you know i i shot john and just focus on i i'm not really in a way i'm not really the right person to like well i am in a way i don't really care about it um yeah. it's it's not a good deal at all for you know mm. that streaming stuff is very difficult for people in terms of you know, getting paid, right? Yeah. And and I'm I'm not I'm I definitely am against that. Mm -hmm. um, however, you know, it's hard to stop a moving train, and you know, one of the first things that happens is you get run over by it. Sure. So, I think for me, I have we've been talking for a while. I have a foot in the old business, 
So I have a way of actually getting paid from some of the work that I've done in the past that yeah. doesn't involve Spotify. Yeah. So I feel very lucky That's awesome. that I've been able to make a, a living at music and I'm still a guitarist, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm a lifer, right? So I could rail against Spotify and I could say I think it stinks because it, they don't pay enough and I, and that is how I feel. Yeah. At the same time, it's also the way that a lot of people that are young that I know get their music. Sure. And so in that way, what am I going to say? It's like the radio now. Yeah. I think it's terrible that we've cheapened art to the point, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, I believe that school teachers and jazz musicians and poets should get paid more than the principal, the guy that runs the newspaper, and the yeah. you know, and Drake. But yeah. wh whatever, I'm not the guy that's making those <laughs> rules. So yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Um, so tell me about Wednesdays. Where where can people find you on Wednesdays here in Toronto? Grossman's Tavern, the best dive bar in the city and the home of the blues in Toronto, as far as I'm concerned. Every Wednesday night, I'm there, except for November sixth, and that's not a yearly thing. But it's and then we have a big holiday party on the 21st of December. So mark that on your calendars. We start late and we go late. And what time are we usually on stage? We at? usually start at 10 and we finish around 1.32. Nice. And uh, we um, play three sets. Um, Leo and I are usually the core band. We usually have one of about five terrific Toronto drummers. And we got, I don't know how we got so lucky, but if you come down there on any night, you'll see probably one of the, one of the better Toronto drummers playing with me and Leo, who actually make a pretty good trio together. And... Uh, if you get there when he's not there, then I play more of my stuff too. So you you don't really know what you're going to get, but it's and we've been doing it for three years wow. down there. So you know it doesn't suck. <laughs> you know? If you're still doing it that long, people are still coming yeah, out. Yeah, you know it's it, yeah. It, it, sometimes there's nobody there. Sometimes there's a lot of people there. It really it really depends on what part of the night you're there. Sometimes you know you can get pretty much a private show. Sometimes it's a dance party, so you don't know. And that's what happens when you play a, a steady gig. And actually, it feels like an old-style gig because that is kind of like a, it's a steady thing. Nice. They call that a residency now. That's like a new term like for it. It's an official it. thing. Yeah, but it used to just be, you know, ah, it's I my got weekly gig. gig. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so come on down to my weekly gig, people. And, and what <laughs> I'll can, sing for you. What can uh, your fans and fans of, uh, fans of Spin Doctors expect in 2020? Uh, you can expect Spin Doctors 2020. That'll be new music coming probably March, April. Um, we're going to write a bunch of new stuff in uh, the beginning of the year. We're going to put it out. We'll be playing all year long. Typically, Spin Doctors plays on the weekends in the season between March and November. We, we, we do fly gigs now. We don't generally do on buses and stuff like that. Yeah. And we generally play in the United States mostly, although I think we're going to Europe next year. And I don't know. Played in Quebec once this year. Maybe we'll come to Toronto next year. I'm not sure how that works with Canada. It's... Uh, it's a funny thing. I'm the only guy that lives here. So <laughs> I go, come on, guys, come to Canada. But we got to wait for the offer. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Anyhow. Eric, thanks so much for this. Thank you, man. Thanks for coming to my house. <laughs> Save. 